all bad things. Tragedy. Tragedies, disasters. That's bad things. Trigger warning for everything possible. What? <laughs> I'm Rachel. And I'm David. I'm Sarah, and this is All Bad Things Podcast. Okay. Welcome, everybody. Welcome. <laughs> Sort of. <laughs> sure. We'll, we'll accept that. You can follow us on all your favorite social means at... Instagram. X. <laughs> yeah. Facebook. Discord. Um, Blue Skies. Yes. Uh, SoundCloud. Spotify. Sure. <laughs> Apple Threads. Threads. TikTok and Twitch. Yeah. And a Reddit. There's a lot of things. All the things. At All Bad Things Pod. Yes. Email us allbadthingspod at gmail.com. Facebook discussion group, Discord, etc. Do all those things. <laughs> <laughs> it's just chaos. <laughs> just sheer chaos to start. But that feels appropriate <laughs> for this particular topic. Where are we all drinking? Oh, yeah. We went to pharmacy for the first time in a while. I haven't been since the pandemic started. Uh, What'd you get? See. I have uh, Grateful Eight. Which is a raspberry wheat, but I can't tell what brewery. Oh, Four Saints Brewing. Ashboro, North Carolina. Very nice. Oh, okay. Of the boroughs. There are many boroughs. Yes, in North Kakalaki. What do you got? I have a breakfast stout from a Wilmington Brewing Company. Ooh, we've, uh, no, not Wilmington, uh, Outer Banks. Just turning up the levels here. If we spike, we spike. I am drinking Doomtree. From Fontaflora. I don't know why I'm presenting it to the microphone. <laughs> so the microphone so everyone can see. Can see. Yeah. No, so the microphone Isn't that how it works? Yes. Oh, darn it. That's okay. Real pro operation we got yeah. running here. Yes. It's going about as well as it usually does. Yeah. When That's I'm here. correct. <laughs> <laughs> when anybody's here or it's not. It's a little more pro. We've got, you know, we've got things on the doors now. Yeah, we have our... Oh, that's true. That's true. That I had to screw into the doors. Yeah. She's like... pointing to soundproofing on the door. Oh, thank you for... Mm-hmm. <laughs> we discussed. <laughs> and plus, having as many books as possible also helps. It yep. does help. That's the whole point. So, yes. <laughs> it's the most expensive soundproofing ever. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, Sarah is aware of the topic of this okay, week's I am not. episode. Yes. And that I'm, I'm hearing why... on a consultant basis. She's a consultant. Oh, I see. $300 an hour. <laughs> oh, better hurry. <laughs> well, and she did it with a backhand. Yes. So. so, I gave you a very obtuse hint yeah, what the was other that? day. What was it? Um, same-o, same-o. Yeah. You said that while I was playing video games. So, so you weren't listening? Is that well, what you're trying to say? No, that's kind of why I remember it, because it sounded weird. Same-o, same-o? Same-o, same-o. No it's idea. not a reference I would have even gotten until doing this okay. This research, but we are on to the fourth installment of the 27 Club. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. There Now, there's many people. Sure. <laughs> And this is probably one, well, this is one it was kind of more, because, you know, there's the 
the Seminoles 27 Club members, right? Janice, Janice Jimmy, Jim. Um, because they died so... Kurt. Huh? Kurt. Well, yes, but he didn't die till much later. That's Those true. three died within a few they months. They did, within other, like 18 months Which is what started the yeah. 27 Club. I think Janice and Jimmy died within like weeks of each other mm-hmm. or something. That's crazy. Um, and we did Jim Morrison, but we did, we did Anton Yelkin. We did. Which had nothing to do with it. It was a freak Jeep accident. Um, and we did uh, uh, the fighter that Lee I was going to say, yes, mm-hmm. the boxer. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dooku Kim. Yep, that, that Lee uh, did a script for. Um, so those are the three we've done. Well, this is another... It's not obs- He's not obscure, but not one of the biggies, I guess. Um, this is the story of... Jean, Jean, oh my goodness, Jean-Michel Basquet. Do you Uh, recognize it when it's written like this? Do you remember the movie that came out in the 90s? A little bit. Uh, Okay. Anyway. Yeah, this this is news to me. We can call him JMB. JMB. (laughs) I call him Jean for most of the, because his his friends and interviews and stuff seem to refer to him as Jean more than Mm. anything. JMB just kind of made me think of L-I-M-P Biscuit is right here. (laughs) (laughs) This has nothing to do with Biscuit. (laughs) Since since New Metal is back. (laughs) Is it still new? It's old metal. It's old new metal. It's been found again new. The oldie metal. Yes. Kids love it. So, on all, and here's another thing. This just happened to come up. We are almost at the 35th anniversary of his death. Wow. Well, on August okay. 12th, 1988, oh, wow. influential visual artist Jean-Michel Basquet died of a heroin overdose, making him one of the many creatives comprising the infamous 27 Club. Wow, 1988 was 35 years ago. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. People born in 1988 are turning 35, yes. or in their mid 30s. At some point this year. Yes. That is, no. <laughs> no, I just allow that. I don't allow that. No, we're we're, we're going to get rid of math. That's that's, <laughs> that's, what I, that's the platform I'm running on. Sad Time things. has stopped. <laughs> Time has stopped, <laughs> and this we're math done thing, aging. We're not doing it anymore. Uh, we've done all the math already. So. So sources. There are a lot of sources for this one. Um, Artland Magazine, Art News, Biography.com, Britannica, The Collector, Dazed, Deadline, DNA Info, The Guardian, Let's Roam, PBS. A big source was this article from um, the September 26th, 1988 issue of New York Magazine, which was right after he died. Samo is Dead, The Fall of Jean-Michel Basquet by Phoebe Hoban. And Wikipedia. Natch. All right. (coughs) So... Jean-Michel Basquet was born on December 22nd, 1960, in Park Slope, Brooklyn, New York. Now, gives him, I was like, hey, we covered a disaster in Park Slope. Do you remember the plane plane crash? crash. There was a plane crash in Park Slope. Man, that was a long time ago. We covered that a while back, so I was like, huh, I wonder when that was. The answer is six days before he was born. No kidding. No joke. The Park Slope plane crash happened on December 16th, 1960. He was born in in Brooklyn six days after this freak plane crash in Brooklyn. I just thought that was kind of wild. And he was born in 1960, so he would only be turning 63 mm-hmm. this year. He'd still, still be, be plenty. relatively young. Yeah. <laughs> relatively young at 63, but hey. <clears throat> yeah. People really... are looking pretty old, so. Yeah. 
He was born to Matilda Andrades Basquet and Gerard Basquet. His mother was also born in Brooklyn to Puerto Rican parents, and his father was from Port-au-Prince, Haiti. Mm-hmm. So he, is, despite having a very French-sounding name, it's because because his dad was Haitian. Haitian. So he is was born and raised in well, uh, I'll get to that. But he was born in the United States and largely lived in the United States. Uh, his parents had a son before they had Jean, but he died before Jean was born. So he was the oldest and living kid in his family. He had two younger sisters, Lizanne and Janine, born in 1964 and 1967, respectively. Um, Basquet seems to have inherited his artistic interests from his mother, who was interested in fashion design and drawing sketches of designs. And Jean was a very apt child. He was reading by age four, and at that point he was also drawing a lot. So he was artistic from a really young age. Um, his father was an accountant, <laughs> so he had a very creative mom and an accountant dad, um, but his dad would bring home sheets of paper from work, and that's what Jean would draw on. We had that growing up. Like yes, weird, we did. Weird bulletins. The Wheaton and... Bible, co- yeah. or the Wheaton Church, uh, the green half uh-huh. sheets of paper uh-huh. with the, oh my goodness, yes. <laughs> I, as soon as... Our parents told me that if you mix flour and water together, it makes paste. So many pastings <laughs> happened with those sheets of paper for no apparent reason, just other than... I, I, my mom was a teacher, so she had access to school mm, supplies. Mm-hmm. Back back at a time when teachers didn't have to buy their own fucking yeah. supplies. <laughs> but, Imagine uh, that. So, I mean, all of us, we had... I mean, I had tons of freaking art books, and they were all filled. Really? Yeah, we all, mm. we all had art books. Well, Write in them, draw in them. You like drew never. as a kid. Oh, yeah. We oh. still have some of your never really gotten a painting. Doodles, yeah. But coloring and drawing, cartoon and that kind of stuff. type yeah. stuff. Which interestingly, that's one of the things that John. I mean, it's yeah, very yeah. kid like. Jean Michel right? definitely like took it somewhere. We didn't. We're not <laughs> no, trying to compare. No. Well, we never. We never. The internet didn't exist when I was a child, so we don't know. If TikTok had been around when I was twelve, I'd be famous. Jean Michel didn't have TikTok. Whatever. <laughs> He's got a better name. So Jean and his mother would often visit New York City's many art museums and theaters together, fostering a sense of artistic appreciation in the young Basquet. Um, as a child, like many kids, Jean drew based on cartoons and comic books, as well as pictures of cars. But that wasn't his only inspiration. He also drew pictures of Alfred E. Newman. The Mad Magazine oh, mascot okay, guy? Oh, okay, sure, yes. Yeah. Um, I was like, I know that name is familiar for some reason. That's, yeah. that's why. And drawings based on Alfred Hitchcock films. Sure. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm seeing where... <laughs> where this I, kid I'm is se- headed? Well, yeah, like, I'm, I'm seeing why he became famous. That, that's, well, very artistic Those background. are some styles to mix up right there. <laughs> Mad Magazine and, and Alfred Hitchcock. Hitchcock. <laughs> I'll occasionally remember that when I was 11 and 12, I was particularly interested in Alfred Hitchcock films and just wonder about little Rachel. <laughs> was she okay? Is she okay? Well, I mean, it, like, uh, one of the one of the few classes I went to when I went to school uh, for uh, radio and television was a film class. And um, Rear View Window? Or mm-hmm. Rear Window. Rear Window. Which we watched recently. Yes, we did. Yeah, a couple of years ago, I think we watched it. But it was like... The most obvious thing, but at the same time, like, the most subjective thing, like, you're becoming the voyeur just by watching mm-hmm. the movie. 
you know, which is a movie about watching voyeurism. So it, it's uh-huh. like, but it's done so subtly, like you don't really realize it until somebody points it out. So, yeah, I, I think this kid's going some places. <laughs> <laughs> hey, if you're appreciating Hitchcock as like a seven year old, mm-hmm. yeah, you're you're going somewhere. We're just not sure where. <laughs> um, this is a pretty funny story too. He also drew a picture of a gun, and he mailed it to J. Edgar Hoover. Huh. Yeah, interesting. Man. Interesting. Hey, I think you'd be interested in this. It reminded me of you. Uh, Hoover did not reply. <laughs> so this is a picture of little, little Jean-Michel. Pictures oh, no. of little boys in, like, tux or suits. Is so just like he's so cute. He's very cute. He's and very it's just cute. Like little, boy. little sad eyes. No, he does have little sad eyes. Little sad face. Well, <laughs> imagine being a Puerto Rican Haitian kid in the sixties. Yeah. That's not gonna be the easiest life in the world. Yep. Even in New York, one of the more cosmopolitan places. So when he was seven years old, Jean was out in the street near his house playing stickball with his friends in Flatbush. Like, couldn't get more stereotypically I 60s. was just going to say, like, you, you know, can't, like... It's like out of a Scorsese film I was going to say, it's almost fake at It, this it point. is almost fake. Like, did everybody play stickball? Like, <laughs> right. I know you all didn't. When he was hit by a car. Oh, Jesus. Yep. He eventually had to have his spleen removed. Oh, yeah. So it was pretty bad. And he spent quite a while in the hospital. And according to his sister, Lizanne, Matilda brought Jean a copy of Grey's Anatomy. And her reasoning that, so, not the TV show. I was, that's what I was <laughs> The actual book. The actual book. Medical reference book. I was like, wait, are we time jumping now? What are we doing? <laughs> not Meredith's Grey's Anatomy. Um, Matilda's idea was that she wanted her son to understand what happened to his body in the accident and how it needed to be reconstructed or fixed. Um, years later, his friend and fellow artist Jennifer Von Von Holstein would comment, quote, those images seen from Grey's Anatomy crop up all around his work. It's kind of his Rosetta Stone of imagery. Hmm. Hmm. Obviously, such a traumatic event at such a young age would be very influential to anyone who would go on to be an artist, right? Um, That year was traumatic in other ways, too. Uh, Matilda and Gerard separated and divorced, and his mother, who battled depression throughout her life, was institutionalized into a psychiatric facility. Mm. Um, And she would spend the rest of her life in and out of facilities and treatment. A kid would blame themselves for that. Like, oh, I got in trouble by getting hit by a car right. and caused I mean, my parents' divorce. You can and... see how a kid's mind would certainly go down Absolutely. that road. Mm-hmm. For sure. Um, Jean would later say, quote, my mother went crazy as a result of a bad marriage to my father. End quote. So the flip side of it is you can start seeing one of the parents as the bad guys, yeah. right? And I'm not saying that his dad was perfect, not by a long time. We're going to get into some of that. But um, Jean and his sisters were raised by their father from that point on. So from a young age, he was actually raised by a single father. Although I think his father remarried at some point, too. Um, As a young child, he attended St. Anne's School, a private Catholic school. The Busquet family was Catholic. But he later transferred to public school. By age 11, Jean could speak and read English, French, and Spanish fluently. Wow. Smart kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and like many smart kids, not that great in school, right? Yeah, was, school's yeah. not really meant for the smart ones, <laughs> like the really apt yeah. ones. 
Well, for ones that they... On a different level, on a different plane. They think in, in a different way yes. that's just not compatible with... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1974, Jean's family moved to Miramar, Puerto Rico, oh. though they returned to Brooklyn just a couple years later in 1976, where Jean was enrolled into the Edward R. Murrow High School. Uh, his rebellious teenage years were fueled, at least in part, by his mother's psychiatric issues and the instability that caused in their relationship. When he was 15 years old, his father caught him smoking weed in his room, there you go, and Kim. Jean ran away. Oh, mm-hmm. well, I mean... He slept on park benches, yeah. took acid, and shaved oh. his head. All right. Like, <clears throat> so things that, it escalated pretty quickly. Never, yeah. yeah that, I mean, that really got out of hand. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we're going to get into it in just a second as to, like, wait, why, how would, like, smoke, catching your kids smoking weed in their room turn into them, like, running away and that, and we're going to get I mean, into that in all dad fairness, like, my drug uses went from, like... The first thing I tried was weed, and then the next thing I tried was acid. But I just never wound up living on a park bench. <laughs> so. Well, did your mom ever catch you smoking? Oh, yeah. <laughs> did you yeah, ever there's... run away? No. Okay. No. Was, did you ever a... run away from home as a kid? No. Uh, no? Yeah, me neither. No, there's, there's a pretty famous story that involves a graduation party where she caught us all smoking. Yes, I recall that. <laughs> if she listens to this, she'll recall it too. Yes, she'll turn it off right now and be like... <laughs> Gerard said, oh, so when his father finally found him, he called the cops to bring Jean home. Gerard later said that when they got home, quote, Jean-Michel said to me, Papa, I will be very, very famous one day, end quote. Uh, Gerard would also say later of Jean, quote, he was like no other kid. He was always so bright, absolutely an unbelievable mind, a genius. A kid that bright thinks for some reason he is above the school system and teachers and rebels against it. He wanted to paint and draw all night. He got thrown out of schools. Jean-Michel couldn't be disciplined. He gave me a lot of trouble. End quote. It is also important to note that Jean told friends he was badly beaten as a kid. Mm-hmm. Gerard denied this. He... <laughs> But then he said he never did anything, quote, other than spank Jean-Michel with a belt, end quote. Yeah, so that'll do it. This, it is entirely possible that this is a case of interpretation. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people um, think that hitting a kid for, quote, discipline reasons is mm-hmm. just, quote, discipline. Um, while others, and this includes me, considers that abuse. And I would call spanking a child with a belt abuse. Yeah. So it, I think both things can be true. That Gerard's like, no, I didn't beat him because he didn't view that as beating him. Jean-Michel viewed it as beating, and I can understand that and sure. agree. Um, and so I guess we're coming out as a podcast against child abuse. <laughs> <laughs> Don't hit your kid. I got, I got the belt once. Really? I'll never forget it. I mean, because you don't, you don't forget when you get the belt. Because <laughs> that's pretty, you fucked up pretty bad. Do you think, mm, and without naming any names, do you think that that's a thing that, like, your friends with kids have carried on? I don't think so. Hitting their kids? No, Because I, I know it was so. very, very common in, like, our generation's yeah. parents. Boomers got the shit beat out of them by their, by our <clears throat> great-grandparents right. or grandparents. Mm-hmm. And they kind of, like, brought that on us. And then by the time, like, our generation had kids, we're like, uh, I'll yell at Like, I'll make, I'll just make you feel yeah, bad. I'll just emotionally abuse <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. I'll make you wish, I'll make you wish I had beaten you. Oh, mentally. 
That's the game we're playing now. <laughs> yeah, I think that um, the the physical it, it was just an overriding thought of the day is that you need to beat your kids, like especially for boys, their own good, right? especially boys, <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. but girls too, but especially mm-hmm. boys. Yeah. Rather, like you're gonna beat up like a tiny human being. Yeah, yeah. Thought, and you're a fully was, grown human being. Yeah, I that was just, fine. There's just something weird about that, too. There's everything weird about it. Yeah. Like, that's not cool at all. I've never looked, like, hey, my nephews and nieces, (laughs) they've all been shits at one time or another. I've never thought, well, if I just backhand them. Mm -hmm. Like, that that thought has never entered my mind. Imagine hitting one of our cats. That would be horrific. And it's like, they're just as innocent and, or just, just even the fact there's not, and except for self-defense, there's no reason to hit another human, right. period, or, or animal, period, right? There's no re- need to be violent or reason to be if violent. If you're in a professional fight and you both agreed to... Oh, well, yeah, okay, fair enough, whatever. But especially if you're bigger and <laughs> yes. can physically overpower, yeah, it's, yeah, it's like, weird. how scary is that? Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, it's fucking weird. It's, no, yeah. like... Please don't hit your kids, oh yeah. my god. Um... Anyway, uh, Jean's sister, Lizanne, also said, quote, was my father a child abuser? Definitely not. We got beatings like any other kids, end quote. So you can That's hear the, the dichotomy, yeah. right? It's just... It's, it's the normalization of that yeah. behavior. You don't know how fucking fucked up it is until you're outside of it. And being right. like, uh... That's not necessary. Like, like, And then also... We just, we just read them books instead. And then also culturally, not yeah. to... I, I can't speak to... Um, if uh, Gerard was from Haiti, I can't speak to like Haitian culture and what's normalized or not normalized at this point or back at, at, you know, at this time. So, um, Jean also told some friends that his father actually stabbed him once, too. Oh. Yeah. Okay, that's... So it's going a little above and beyond. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's obviously very little chance of knowing now what exactly happened and to what extent, based on you know it, everything is especially something I noticed in in researching this. There was a lot of quotations about Jean Michel, but not much from him, right? So <clears throat> it, it's uh, you know hearsay, so to speak. So it's hard to know how much. Or also, as we'll get into how much he was saying lucidly. Mm-hmm. So, um, For the 10th grade, John attended Sidious School High School, an alternative public high school in the West Village. The school's still around now, but it was pretty new at the time. It was opened in 1973 and was meant to help kids who didn't particularly thrive under traditional schooling methods to become more engaged in their education. Um, notable alumni are Adam Horowitz of the Beastie Boys. I was just going to say, yeah. <laughs> and Mackay Pfeiffer. Oh, <laughs> Actor okay. Mackay Pfeiffer, um, among others, are, are alumni. Um, unfortunately, even a more alternative environment didn't seem to suit Jean, as he eventually threw shaving cream into the face of the school principal during a graduation ceremony and got kicked out. Sure. There was quite literally no coming back from that. probably get you kicked out. So he dropped out of high school at age 17. Um, At that point, and this kind of speaks maybe a little more to the possibility that Gerard was a bit stricter or violent than he would like to lead on, he kicked him out. He kicked his kid out of... He sounds like one of those sort of feral kids who Mm. just (laughs) won't listen or obey rules like out of 
in an inability or just, you know, rebel, whatever is going mm-hmm. on in their head, it's just an impossibility. Like, doing things like that, like throwing stuff, yeah. kicking, spitting, causing mischief and mayhem, mm-hmm. it's like they, I feel there's often a sense of, that I get, that they can't control themselves, right? right. It's not like they're mm-hmm. sitting there going, I want to cause trouble. It's it's a just an inability to kind of, like, fit in with societal um, expectations, Especially at a time back in the 60s and 70s where there was no awareness or talk of ADHD, mm-hmm. neurodivergence, mental health, anything mm-hmm. like that, that that a child could potentially get um, evaluated for and assistance for. There was yeah. no help for that. So, yeah. Um, so Gerard kicked him out and he started living in Washington Square Park, which is exactly where his father had found him two years ago. Uh, He later said, quote, I just sat there dropping acid for eight months. Now all that seems boring. It eats your mind up. I was also selling homemade postcards and hand-painted abstract expressionist sweatshirts to make money. Yeah, I'll bet he was after dropping acid for eight months straight. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's a lot. That's that's another thing. I don't is... even know what to do with that information. How is that even possible? Yeah, that's another thing is uh, unsure how much stuff like that just altered his brain chemistry yeah. or perceptions yeah. over time, yeah. Quite a bit. Um, and he also couch surfed at friends' houses, so he was either staying yeah, he was on the streets on, or literally always on acid. You yeah, can't really uh, function all that well. And at a really young age, so. when the brain is still developing and everything, yeah. <clears throat> so Besquet's first foray into public art was street art as a teenager in 1978. So graffiti basically began was invented with the invention of aerosol paint, spray paint, in 1949. It proliferated in cities like New York and Philadelphia starting in the late 1960s through around this time, the late 70s, which was right before the Reagan days and the days of the so-called broken window policing Uh, theory. Which still exists today. Yeah. Basquiat teamed up with friends and fellow artists, including Al Diaz, who he knew from Cydia's school, uh, Matt Kelly and Shannon Dawson, together creating the SAMO campaign mm. stylized as samo followed by a copyright symbol so it looks yes. like that okay it looks like samo it, almost but kinda, it's yeah. pronounced samo um al diaz later explained quote samo was part of the slang back then where you would hear an elderly black guy talking to each other and say hey what's up and the other guy would answer samo samo uh as in end quote so as in other words Oh, sorry, this is continuation of the quote. As in other words, the same old shit or the same old thing, mm-hmm. whatever. And that's really where we borrowed that from. And okay. So that's his version of how they got that. Interesting. So Samo started uh, as like a satirical idea where they made pamphlets for a fake religion called Samo. <laughs> that's funny. Isn't it? And so they like they like handed out these pamphlets for a cult, basically, <laughs> called Samo. It's a fake cult. Um, and then it grew into sort of like an experimental theater idea while they were in Cydia's school. Jean would later say, quote, it started as a private joke and then grew, end quote. So in, and this is before the internet, too. This is all oh, well organic. This is internet. all straight up I mean, We can ask Al Gore, but I'm yes. pretty sure it was before. Well, he had, he had already invented it. Like there you go. <laughs> but no, this is straight up... Uh, Viral the, stuff, right? Viral before viral is a viral thing. Viral in the real world. Yes. <laughs> Non-virtual vir- virality. Um, 
1978, that's when they kind of turned it into graffiti. They would graffiti, like, Samo, followed by various messages, like, Samo, a pin drops like a pungent odor. <laughs> or, Samo, just in case. <laughs> shit, that sounds... Shit, that sounds like refined when you're 18. And on acid. <laughs> yeah. Um, Samo riding around in daddy's convertible with trust fund money. And Samo as an alternative to God. So. Oh, sure. You can see where this is coming into like it's and interesting going. the yeah. <laughs> it's it's interesting the kind of the line between like satire and art and performance art and street art. It's like kind of all mm-hmm. and that's ultimately the thing I think about Basquet, even though he would become known for his visual art, he was kind of like a creative, right? He he, he sounds and, like he's a little bit all over the place. He engaged and, in performance art, yeah. a little bit in filmmaking, which we'll talk about. Music, he like he is just kind of an all around creative. And he's it, so far, like it seems to me, like he's either got hits or misses. Like there's <laughs> there's nothing there's nothing in between. Could be, although I'll tell you, like. Yeah. Um, well, and we'll get into it. His works of art are not known as misses. Okay, None of sure. Them. Yeah. So, but, but other ventures, now, other ventures are like yeah, like his um, do that one his experimental well. music, which we'll get into. <laughs> I feel like in New York, the art collectives are just—it's just you make a it's friend. You your do. friend is into music. Right. You're into mm-hmm. the art, and you just collaborate and do something like I don't know. I've never tried to create in New York, but I feel like that's definitely what happens: is people just get together and. Make something happen. Yeah. Well, and that's why, I, like, Sarah, when I told her what I was what I was researching, she's like, I can come on and be an Andy Warhol commentator. Because <laughs> I don't know if you know that, that Sarah's pretty knowledgeable about and pretty into Andy Warhol. Yes, I've, yeah, okay. I've known that. Yeah. <clears throat> so, um, and speaking of the New York creative experimental but you, world. But do you know the Dandy Warhols? <clears throat> I have heard of that. <laughs> Um, oh, I always think of them along with um, uh, Brian Jonestown Massacre. That's because they were in a movie together. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Hype, was that it? Uh, Dig. Dig. Very close. Okay. Hype was a movie about Seattle in the early 90s. Oh, that's right. That's right. Okay. Um, so it wasn't just graffiti. They would also write these phrases like in marker in public toilets and on the train, you know, yeah. like you see it. But it was kind of like it's, spreading it's, it, right? It's viral, it's viral art. It is viral art. They had a lot of yeah. time on their hands to do that. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, when he wasn't hustling his postcards and sweatshirts, he was writing Samo as an alternative to God in marker. And, in and let's bathroom. be honest, like kids this age, that you just find something to do. Yeah. yeah. Like you you just have so much energy. It's like oh, man. Yeah. You know. Like why can't you have energy when you're <laughs> yeah. working a forty hour work week for God's sake? And listen to these stories and be like, man, I wish I could like go like spray paint some shit. I was like, oh, <laughs> I don't know how to I have I to get dressed. Yeah. <laughs> I don't feel I'm like it. Do it. <laughs> My back hurts. <laughs> oh. And I so. have to shave. <laughs> so, um, I didn't tell you this, David. So, for everybody listening, I have conquered my fear of flipping underwater to try oh. and learn my flip turn for swimming. Um, but as I was trying to figure out how to how to do it, um, Sarah had talked with a friend who was uh, uh, she she coaches swim. She coaches swim, mm-hmm. and she suggested 
you can try just like getting used to the idea of somersaulting by somersaulting on land, right? And she suggested somersault on a bed or a couch. And I'm like, well, I'll somersault on the floor so that I don't fall off of something. Here's the problem. The floor is very hard. <laughs> Yeah. No, if, I didn't if, if crash you, into anything. Say, I did not crash into you land wrong, though? That's no. what I thought. I was like, you could break your stupid net. No, it wasn't that. It's just that, like, all your bones hit the floor, and you're like, ow, 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 ow. <laughs> I'm like, why didn't this hurt when I was a child? It hurts as an adult. your bones are still fucking rubber. Oh, my goodness. Anyway, anyway, don't try a somersault, friends over 30. I don't, I don't know what else to tell you. At least not on a wooden floor. Well, I, I was on the rug, but yeah, still... <laughs> Um, so, <clears throat> Jean specifically targeted walls in Soho with his graffiti near art galleries in an attempt to draw attention, draw the attention of the art world, which worked. So he was kind of a hustler, right? And he knew where to, to kind of, to, to strike, I guess. He became more and more involved in New York's punk and alternative scene. This is in the new wave era. Right? I was this just going to say this is, this is at the post punk. This is at the very beginning of like the alternative scene. Exactly. For all sorts of things, music, movies, mm-hmm. comic books, all sorts of shit. In 1979, he appeared on the public access show TV Party, hosted by style writer and former member of Andy Warhol's Factory. Glenn O'Brien and Chris Stein, guitarist of up and coming band, an up up and coming band called Blondie. Oh, who? <laughs> I've never heard <laughs> of that. Um, do you have you heard of Glenn O'Brien? Uh, no. I don't know that name, but I yeah, certainly I know the band. Yeah. Well, no, right. it's uh, Chris Warhol. Stein was the one who. Was oh, in. okay. Uh, Glenn O'Brien was part of uh, Warhol's Factory, which I think I asked at some point. Can you just? speak to Andy Warhol's factory. What is Andy Warhol's factory? <laughs> I mostly know it from the 60s. So mm-hmm. in its kind of heyday, mm-hmm. by I feel like by the 80s, it was pretty much yeah kind of over because he had trans transferred into other media. But it was just kind of the uh, a location in New York for people to kind of go and create or not create, party, not party, be... Their, their weird selves. The other thing, too, like, we're, we're talking about, like, the early 1980s with a public access show in, let, let's face it, the tri-state, New York City area. Even if 100,000 people are watching your show... That's, you're, you're, uh, you're, that's Public that's, access in New York is way bigger than huge. public access in Kenosha. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Any big yeah. city. You're never yeah. going to get 100,000 views in Kenosha. <laughs> it's not happening. Yeah, it was like a little but cult you, show. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Because it could be in that... It's like you could become like a little trend. Mini celebrity. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Isn't that because how Mystery Science Theater started? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sh- all, I mean, yes, punk, it did in, in punk rock. Minnesota, yeah. Anything cultural that kind of took over at this time just started with, okay, we're going to introduce this in a big population area. Some people are going to get into it, but it's going to be enough to... It's a niche br- thing, but exactly. you can still be a niche thing. It's going to be enough be to bring it to the yeah. to the masses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's cute, too, because now you don't have niche. If something's popular, no. it's popular. Now, now just everything's niche. Yeah. Or there's no... Or just it's like you have enough of an audience that it's not a niche thing. It's not like you and seven other people on a message board. Right. It's like a million people on TikTok. Right. It's like, you know? oh, I'm really into this thing called K-pop. K-pop? <laughs> this what? little thing that only like six of my friends are into. Yeah. Only. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so Jean and Glenn O'Brien hit it off, and Jean continued to appear on the show over the next several years. And also in 1979, he got into experimental music when he met Michael Holman at a party, and they formed the band Grey, whose lineup would eventually include Vince Gallo. Oh, wow. Oh, the, the, director? the director? of Brown Bunny wow. fame, yes. I was going to say <laughs> Buffalo uh-huh. 66. Oh, and Buffalo that, 66, that's, yes. That's me. Mm-hmm. I remember going down a total, With no Christina pun Ricci. In, okay, no pun intended, a, a rabbit hole about the brown bunny back in the see, earlier know. internet days when I read about it. And I was like, well, now I have to see the movie. Couldn't find it anywhere to pirate, right? Is that like it? as a director? Uh, I haven't. I've never seen it. But it's just very infamous for having an unsimulated or- oral sex scene. Oh, with uh, Chloe Sevigny. Chloe yeah. Sevigny, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. okay. I, there... Ebert panned it, uh-huh. and then Vince Gallo got yes. hugely mad at him. <laughs> and was like, that. Ebert's fat and dumb. And Ebert's well, like... Well, uh, Vince Gallo is also No, from, uh... oh, he said, didn't he, he say said, He said, <laughs> I might not always be fat, but Vince Gallo would have always directed film. <laughs> <laughs> it was a great Such comeback. A See, Vince Gallo, when he was hitting his alternative heyday was at the exact same time the Buffalo Bills were going to the Super Bowl as Vince Gallo's from Buffalo. Oh, is that huge... like Buffalo 66? You know. Yes. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Buffalo 66 is like a semi-true story about his mom has been a season ticket holder for the Bills ever since they came to it's Buffalo. It's about the Buffalo Bills? The, the title is. The only game that she ever missed was giving birth to him. In 66? Like, yes. And oh, she, that's cute. But, it, well, he... She... That that's he was not born in 66, though. Otherwise, it's, he would have been 13 at the time that they were <laughs> It's, that, it's that's fictionalized, they, I get it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yes. Was Christina Ricci his mom in the film? No, Christina Ricci was his girlfriend in the oh. film. Was he in it? Was Vince Gallo yeah. in it? Yeah. Yeah. That's, I Christina have a, Ricci was like 20 at the time, probably. Yeah, I gotcha. I have a problem <laughs> with directors. <laughs> That was too long of a pause. Sorry. I was swallowing. I I also have a problem with directors who like to appear in their own films. Oh, my goodness. I do. It reminds me of Tarantino. And I I have grown to really dislike Tarantino. He's had some great cameos. He has in his films. <laughs> we'll move on. So Gray, the band, would play the alternative scene in New York in clubs like Mud Club and CBGB. Oh, very CBGB famous. We know, yeah, very famous club. In 1979, while selling his work on the street, Jean met Andy Warhol, selling him a postcard. He then went to Warhol's famous factory, so the physical location, even though it wasn't in its heyday, and Warhol bought some of Jean's painted sweatshirts. And then I have have Sarah talk about the factory and Warhol achievement. Jean would later say, quote, I just wanted to meet him. He was an art hero of mine, mm-hmm. end quote. So if he was going to museums in the 60s with his mom, that would be like yeah. prime Warhol days. Yeah. I think Andy Warhol had pretty much stopped selling art by then, and he was doing more of his mentoring relationships, so it makes sense. When was he shot? 68. Oh, wow. Really? That was way earlier than I yeah, thought. Yeah, I was going to say, I thought it was like the late 70s. Yeah, not I even, didn't realize it was. Not even close. Can you name who shot him? I, I don't. 
Valerie Solanus. Yeah. yeah. I know that from Lou Reed's song. Valerie Solanus. <laughs> I believe there's got to be some retribution. I believe. Yeah. I would have thrown the switch on her myself. <laughs> yeah, man. Only, only Lou Reed can make me feel sympathetic for somebody that shot somebody else. No, no, no. no. It's the other way around. I, no, he hated her. I, no, I know. I'm, I'm kidding. Yeah, I, just, I looked it up. 68. Mm. Wow, really? Yeah. And he struggled with uh, physical ramifications 60, until he died. 68 is 55 years ago? How old was he when yeah, he died? Well, he was born in the 20s, 27. I know he died before he was 60, so, yeah. and he died in the late 80s. Yep. He died yes. a year yeah, before. Yeah, 68 is 55 years ago. That is I'm fucking sure. crazy. Yeah. What? Huh? <laughs> um, so, in 1980, Jean and Al Diaz had a falling out, and Busquet tagged, Samo is dead, all over the city. Well, yeah. He continued to work on his various artistic pursuits, including his visual art, while also crashing with friends, including Glenn O'Brien and his friend-slash-girlfriend, we'll get into that a little bit, Suzanne Malouk. Uh, one of his friends was Patricia Fields, most known, sorry, Patricia Field, most known for being the costume designer for Sex in the City, who showed some of Busquets' early works in her store before he broke through. Um, in June 1980, his work was included in the Times Square show by the New York Artists Collective Collab. His work there drew the attention of several art critics and curators, including influential art dealer Def Jeffrey Deitch, who wrote about Jean in the magazine Art in America, calling Jean's work, quote, a knockout combination of de Kooning and subway spray paint scribbles, end quote. He continued, I don't, I've heard of de Kooning no idea what the style is like. I'm not art-cultured enough, I guess. He continued making influential and creatively connected friends, including Fred, Fab Five Freddy, Brathwaite. Oh, I know who that is. Yep. Freddy was set to be featured in the music video for Blondie's Rapture. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Which included, I watched for it, this is hilarious. It included a rap verse. Oh no. <laughs> referencing yes. him, re referencing Freddy, and Grandmaster Flash. Freddy tried to get Flash to appear in the video, but he didn't show up. Jean had just, like, tagged along with Freddy, and he's like, hey, why don't you play <laughs> the DJ? And so, if nice. you go on YouTube and you look up the Rapture music video, you can see Jean Michel Vesquet. In this, a non-speaking, non-singing role. And obviously, this is the very early days of M this is MTV's second year in existence. Mm -hmm. 1980. Oh, I thought you said 82. Mm -hmm. No, they launched in 81. I think this is right before that. It's either 80 say, or 81. It's like late yeah. 80, early 81, something like that. MTV launched in 81, so it was just before. It was like probably. Yeah, it's like just as it's on, breaking. Probably shown on the public access channel. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, just as a side note, it is really cringe watching Debbie Harry try to rap. Just saying. Oh my goodness, why <laughs> do you even try? Because I know a lot of people think Debbie Harry's like one of the cool chicks or whatever. I don't care how cool you are. If you are a white lady, you should not be rapping in public. Like, rap on your own. In, at, at home, in the comfort of your own home. Please don't rap in front of anybody else. Rap um, like, please, please rap like nobody's watching. Don't, just don't do it. With nobody with, watching. With anybody watching. Don't do it, but if you have to do it, 
make sure that <laughs> like you're even the, only the one coolest that knows. people have a limit to their coolness, and we found yeah. Debbie Harry's limit in Rapture. Well, we didn't know that until later on. I, I get it now, Rapture. <laughs> Rapture. <laughs> oh no, Debbie. Yeah. So around <laughs> she, she did though. She definitely did. Yes. Around the same time, he was also filming an art film about the post-punk scene in Manhattan that was initially called New York Beat, but wouldn't, but would be eventually produced and released 20 years later, in tw- 2000, wow. as Downtown 81. Debbie Harry also appeared in the film, giving the two another connection, and in 1981, Jean sold his first painting to Debbie Harry. Wow. An acrylic and oil stick on canvas called Cadillac Moon for $200. About six hundred seventy-five dollars. I was gonna today. say not not bad for uh yeah. Well, yeah. for uh, uh I guess at this point like money back in the day. He's yeah. like a peripheral art world figure, yeah. right? Like in the underground scene, not not anything mainstream. As someone with a tumultuous adolescence and deep roots in the punk and new wave scene in New York, this probably isn't a surprise, but it's important to note given his death. That for years, Jean drank and used drugs of all types. You're, wait, um, <laughs> do you have something to reference that? I've never heard that before. <laughs> I didn't really think people did drugs yeah. in the 80s. Yeah, like, I know, it's yeah. funny. Like, like I, I would really like to see the references. That that was <laughs> do you have proof yeah. that he was, had access to drugs in the 80s? I'm, I'm, I'm not buying it. <laughs> Things could get very intense in the club scene to the point where one night in Club 57... A popular club in the East Village. It very nearly burned down and they had to evacuate everyone. According to the performance artist John Sex, who was there, as everyone else was Sex. As everyone else was evacuating, Jean was standing in the corner laughing and smoking weed. Jean Sex said Jean Sex. John Sex said, quote, he was on drugs from the day I met him. He took everything. A lot of acid, a lot of pot, yeah, a lot seems of coke. To be, like, you can't always be on acid. You just, you can't. Like, you're I supposed mean, to do tell it. Tell Jean-Michel that. I, I wish I could have. Like, yeah. I, like, like I, I've done a decent amount of it, but it was like, I did it a handful of times in like a three or four year span, and it was always with a bunch of other people doing it. And we weren't doing it. <laughs> so that it. made it better? Yes, it does. Yeah, it, because everybody's on the same mental plane, you know. Tripping so, balls. So yes. the idea of like being in a crowd of sober and or drunk people it and would, doing would, acid yeah, would, would just not be work. not a good experience. No, it would <laughs> not work. Especially so you need being on your level. Especially <laughs> being on acid like all the time, like you would just be tired all the time. Because when you trip on acid, you're it's it's a commitment. You're gonna be incapacitated for a while. Uh, six, seven, eight hours at least. Mm-hmm. And then when you come out of it, you're just kind of like... But what if you're doing it all the time? Eventually the drug would change how it works on your brain, right? Guess, because your know. brain would adapt I, to it. It sounds never, like he's just like on a mood-altering <laughs> right. substance at all times. He's say, on something never, most I've of the time. I never wanted to find out any of the answers to those yeah, questions. Mm-hmm. So, man, no. But I'm, I just wonder like how predatory people were around mm-hmm. him and how manipulated he could be and how many dangerous situations he put himself in. Yep. And we're going to get into some of that. Absolutely. So in February 1981, Basquiat's work was included in the New York New Wave art show curated by Diego Cortez, 
which not only made him a lot of money off the paintings he sold, but generated a lot of buzz in the art world. Italian art dealer Emilio Mazzoli bought 10 of the 15 paintings Basquiat had in the show and invited him to Italy, where his first solo show was held in 1981. And this was basically his tipping point into actual Actual art world fame and fortune. He earned $30,000 or $100,000 today. It's like critical acclaim, essentially, which is what you needed to be a... Yes, he was getting rave reviews. Yeah. He was the age getting of 21. Yes. Uh-huh. This is yep, this is he had just turned 21 mm-hmm. in fact because he was born at the end of the year. So yeah. Um he was like the next hot thing, right? Mm-hmm. That this is the point that that um that happened which obviously as someone who has substance well I don't think it would not to diagnose someone but it sure sounds like he has substance abuse disorder or substance use disorder but um it could be potentially dangerous to suddenly have a lot of access it and a lot of it didn't seem like he was having trouble accessing that's it to begin with that's true so art dealer and gallery owner Anina Nose invited John to work in a studio in the basement of her gallery giving him his first dedicated space to work he got extensive coverage in Art Forum magazine at the end of 1981, further cementing his rising star status. Unfortunately, his drug use continued to rise along with that star. Suzanne Malouk said around this period, trigger warning for body stuff, quote, mm. he was doing huge amounts of cocaine and he got a hole in his nose. Yeah, end quote. Uh, yeah. So I looked this up. This apparently is called nasal perforation. Mm-hmm. It's a hole that can develop in the septum. I was just that happened say, to one of the Baywatch ladies. Yeah. <gasps> really? Yeah, the one with the big it, blue eyes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, I, and dark hair. So not Carmen Electra. Or Pam it was Anderson. not. No, Those it was not. Ones I know. <laughs> she, uh, she's also Yasmin Bleeth. Yeah, she's oh, a Georgina lady too. Yes. Yeah. But uh. <laughs> But yes, it basically cuts like a hole through the cartilage. The septum, inside, yeah. Yes. Between the two nostrils, yeah. Mm-hmm. And can you imagine it's how much fucking bears. coke you'd have to do for that to happen? At 21. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, this appar- yes, uh, Suzanne also said, quote, he was doing so much coke, we would wake up screaming in the middle, he would wake up screaming in the middle of the night, the CIA is going to kill me. So we installed a sophisticated alarm system. I decided to write down how much he was doing. At the time, he was spending $2,000, which is around $6,700 today, on coke and pot, and he was starting to freebase. He had black paper on all the windows so he could sleep during the day. He would paint five paintings at once for five days on cocaine and then sleep for a week, end quote. Jesus fucking Christ. I mean... And then he this had is the, um, Jean and Suzanne. Okay. And then he had the critical acclaim to be like, whatever I'm doing is working. Yeah. Let me do more coke. Of course, yeah. Mm-hmm. He looks like he's still 15. He's, yeah, very, very young looking. Yeah, and he's uh, 21 there, right? I'm not sure what. They were friends and okay. et cetera. Like, off and on, we'll talk a little bit about his um, relationships and stuff, but... Um, Jean was also known for having an erratic temperament. Not I a big surprise. Why. And eventually he burned bridges with Anina Nose. In the summer of 1982, at age 21, so he is... 21. 
22. Oh, yeah. When he, no, when he broke, he was 20. Mm. When he broke big, he was 20 because that was 81, but he wasn't born until the end of the year. So That's now we're in 82 right. and he was born, I know, being someone who's born at the end of the year. At the end of the year. <coughs> Basically just tack it on to the next year. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's easier yep. to do the math that way. In summer of 82, at age 21, <laughs> do you need help? <laughs> I could the nails. The nails are tricky. Thank you. I know, I'm sorry. But it, was just to, uh, it was just to save it. Would you like uh, no, any sort of a wife or anything? I'm sorry. You haven't been around sick people, right? I guess not. That was my sister. I know. It was just a... Uh, uh, I'm yeah, sorry. So. You can have one of my beers if you prefer, and I can it's take okay. that one. one. We're, we're kind of related. Yeah. <laughs> Through marriage, you're related. <laughs> there, there's a little bit of drama going on behind the scenes. It's okay. <laughs> should, I, should we leave it ambiguous? We'll leave it one? ambiguous. Okay. We'll see. Everyone can speculate as to what David did. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so <coughs> Biscay became the youngest ever artist to have his work exhibited in Documenta, a contemporary art exhibition held every five years in Castle, Germany. He had lunch with Andy Warhol in October 1982, yeah. which Warhol wrote about in his diary. I guess he was a big diarist. He was. He... I need to okay. buy them. I haven't bought mm. them yet, but there's a big... Um... The compendium? Yeah. Of them. Wow. But it makes sense that they would get along because I'm thinking about it. Warhol was very ill when he was young, too. Mm. So probably got along. Had something in that. common. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Uh, so he wrote, quote... Down to meet Bruno Biskoffberger, which was Jean's art dealer. And then he wrote, cab, $7.50. That's such an old man thing to to do. (laughs) That sounds expensive for back then, though. A $7.50 I mean, this guy's pretty rich. He's okay. True. He brought Jean-Michel Basquiat with him. He's the kid who used to who used the name Sema when he used to sit on the sidewalk in Greenwich Village and paint T-shirts. And I'd given him I'd give him ten dollars here and there. He was just one of those kids who drove me crazy. He's black, but some people people say he's Puerto Rican, so I don't know. Okay, okay so, Andy, 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 calm all right, down. Andy. <laughs> and then Bruno discovered him, and now he's on Easy Street. He's got a great loft on Christie Street. He was a middle-class Brooklyn kid. I mean, he went to college and things he did not. I don't know what that's about. And he was trying to be like that, painting in the Greenwich Village. And so had lunch for them, and I took a Polaroid, and he went home, and within two hours, a painting was back, still wet, of him and me together. And I mean, just getting to Christie Street must have taken an hour. He told me his assistant painted it, end quote. That's such an Andy Warhol ramble. It is a ramble, very Andy ramble. (laughs) Strange at best. Yeah. Half true, half not, half made up. Right. Andy's just making up stuff. Why do we have all these details? Telling a dumb story. Yeah. The work Warhol is referring to is Dos Cabezas, a portrait of the two of them. This encounter began their friendship, and Jean was featured in Warhol's interview magazine in Janu- <laughs> January. Now I can't pronounce it. <laughs> Jean- oh my God! Jean Vier. Jean Jean Vier. Nineteen eighty-three. <laughs> so how do we feel about like a fifty-year-old a man claiming a 
friendship with a 20 year old. I would like, why do they call it a mentorship yeah. or like a business dealings? Well, or... in function, that's kind of where it was, right? But do you think, did Andy Warhol have like weird, well, <laughs> I was gonna say, did Andy Warhol have weird hangups? Yes, was he trying to? Because he did this, right? Did you know, he? Yeah, it was his pattern throughout his entire career. Like, take little birds under his wing. Little uh-huh. messed up people who could be of benefit to him. Mm. And getting them legs up in the art world or in, in the fame world, whatever right. he felt like doing. And then Which, having... Those are always intertwined. Yeah. Yeah. And then trying to claim credit for it. Right, hmm. so he always wanted a cut of whatever happened huh. next. Like financially? Would, yeah. Oh, wow. So he would say, you know, I raised you. I raised that boy. So then he would just wow. <laughs> want a yeah, cut of it. Uh, yeah. uh, like, um, And then as soon as they became too wild or had their own thing going on, mm-hmm. it would just be like severed ties. Hmm. And I think it was, in my opinion, like a collection thing. Like I think he collected hmm. people. He was he was a big collector. Like when he died, his five story townhouse was like essentially a, a warehouse of stuff, like hoarders mm-hmm. of, yeah. of uh, valuable geez, I, items. Geez, I hope not. No, but of like <laughs> yeah. not garbage. Mm-hmm. Wow. So he just I think did that with people too, and he, and you huh. have that feeling too of sometimes people see acquisitional friendships. And, yep. that, and maybe that's more, maybe it's not so, so businessy, but more of an acquisitional friendship mm. where Andy Warhol saw it as a beneficial thing for him. Like um, networking to the extreme, kind of like, on, yeah, on a but also, personal... give, but and that was the criticism of his relationship with Edie Sedgwick was mm. that as soon oh, as she was of no more use to him, that mm. he just booted her out and wow. she was, she spiraled on drugs. Yeah. So. Mm. Because a lot of people in his wake And I want to say didn't... she was 27 Club too. Was she? Wrong. Oh my goodness. I'll, I'll look it up. I'll look it up. If she was, then you need to do the rest of your research on that. Dual 27s. I mean, if it's not a new story. No, no, not at all. But, um, yeah, that's, it's, it's, there is a power dynamic. 28. 20, oh, just yeah. missed it. But there's... A power dynamic issue, right? Because that's the thing about, like, um, and that a lot of people still get hung up on and don't quite understand is, like, even people still don't even understand that in terms of, like, a manager and an employee or something. And people are like, oh, no, they were free. It's like there's still a power dynamic there. That can still exist in other relationships that are not official, right? Mm -hmm. There can still be a mentor-mentee relationship, and it's still, there is still, it's easy to turn into an abuse power dynamic, right? Not that I'm saying he was, like, sexually abusing anyone. It's more um, just the, the sort of, like, um, taking advantage no, of and, there and is what, a... What would Basquiat be like offering Andy Warhol in terms of friendship? Right, like... I, I think it's, like, relevance to some extent, maybe. Mm-hmm. Or, like, people... A lot of quotes were, like, 
that Andy like the young blood sort of a thing that he was like somehow chasing but that, but that's a youth not friendship. Thing? Yeah. Right? It's not like that yeah. is that's something else. Mm-hmm. So that's why I question it. And I'm not trying to say anybody yeah. with an old elderly friend. I'm not no. saying that that's you know not a no, thing. No, this is specific happens, to Andy Warhol. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that it's uh-huh. extremely uh-huh. suspect to me that everybody's like, oh, they were great friends, and that's all I I I read very briefly about them together mm-hmm. in preparation mm-hmm. half an hour before you came <laughs> 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 to, to you know try to like get my sea legs about it and everybody's like oh yeah great friends great friends great friends and it's just like eh. but you see it's a it's a pattern my friend Pat <laughs> pattern, of behavior. Behavior. pattern of behavior it's a pattern but yeah it's uh it's an interesting like I a curated collection of yeah. friends yeah. yeah that that's um in a symbiotic relationship mm-hmm. at best or an abusive power dynamic at worst, which is, yeah, it's it's concerning. And we'll get to, like, the end of their friendship because okay. that happened, too. Yeah. Um, Jean and Warhol became close friends. <laughs> yeah, so in whatever version of this. Uh, Fab Five Freddy said, quote, they were together every night. They were making the scene in a major way. Andy was a dad to him, for sure. And mm. that's the other mm. part of it, is that we heard about Jean-Michel's dad, and you could see... Them, him, like, adopting a dad figure. This is the two of them. Hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's, pro- it's two complicated humans in a complicated yeah. human relationship, probably, is kind of what it actually was. Not to mention, um, was, was Warhol, especially at this point, post, like, his major, having all his major health problems, was he a, a drug user? I don't think so. Not yeah. as not as yeah. far as he ever admitted to. I think he was pretty. He allowed. I mean, he was around the drugs a lot, mm-hmm. but he wasn't. I don't think very into them. Which is another really interesting dynamic when somebody is in a, is an abstainer in a scene of high drug use. Yeah, that is also a weird thing that I think is probably prone to a certain amount of. Power dynamic abuse too, because if you're the sober one, if you're the exactly if you're the sober person, in a bunch of a sea of people using drugs, you've got a an upper hand Mm -hmm. in what What, you can do and and think. Why are you? Why do you think that's fun? Why are you there? That's Mm -hmm. strange to me. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is interesting. And how malleable people are around you if you provide the drugs. Or provide the, that's that's a provide, whole other thing. Provide right? the environment, uh, environment mm-hmm. that's friendly to them. Yeah, it is. Um, that's that's kind of the thing I was hit by with all this research is just like how messy of a person in a situation this all was. Right? It like nothing is clear cut and nothing is. Um, this was very good. This was very bad. <laughs> right. It's like, it's all just kind of like, it's very muddled and Like very... even when he was doing really good art, yeah. mm-hmm. it was at the cost of his health and sanity, which yep. is typical of artists, frankly. Yep. So around this time, Jean briefly lived in Venice, California, painting in a studio provided by art dealer Larry Gagosian. He also began dating Madonna. Yeah, I remember hearing about that. <laughs> Who had just released her first single in October yes. 1982. Uh, she was, like, hot stuff back then. Not Maybe not quite that, like, in the later it's 80s. It's, like, but... right before she yeah. broke. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, in fact, I think, <laughs> you know how they have the, um, what was the, 
number one song when you were born. For me, it was Like a Virgin. <laughs> yeah, it would have been. Uh, which, yeah. is, which is obnoxious because I hate Madonna, so. Um, I born have the same a, year as your parents. That's that's my problem with Madonna. Yeah. I have forever Madonna. had that association. I'm like, I would, if everything I see Madonna do, I'm like, my mom was that age. Would I want my mom to be doing so the weird thing and it's is, not even like, my mom, it's anybody. Yeah. But in 1982, though, she was 24 years old. She was very young. That's, she was very young. Yeah. Um. So according to Gagosian, quote, one day Jean Michel said, "My girlfriend is coming to stay with me." So I said, "Well, what's she like?" And he said, "Her name is Madonna, and she's going to be huge." Yeah. I'll never forget that he said that. And yeah, I bet. <laughs> called it. Jean also produced a hip hop single called Beat Bop. With Ramel Z, a fellow New York creative, and 15-year-old rapper K-Rob, producing 500 copies with his own work as the cover art. And that's now like a major collectible, right? Mm. <laughs> I'm sure, yeah. While making a ton of money, Jean was also spending a ton of money. On he... what? <laughs> <laughs> What's there things, that he could possibly be eating like, that's so expensive? What not? In addition to the drugs, uh, he was also known for buying many, many, many things um, from dozens of French pastries that he would shove in his fridge and not eat before That's they went drug bad. Fueled. Yep, munchy uh, shit. Yeah, um, to expensive clothes and accessories. He was also known for being very generous to everyone, from friends to strangers on the street. He was known to hand out $100 bills to people experiencing homelessness. He probably, like, even if, even when he had money, he probably didn't have money because he was doing all this yeah, stuff. Probably. He probably exactly. never felt stably wealthy. Yeah, that's entirely possible. This, I think, is very telling. Suzanne would later describe one of his shopping binges. Quote, one day he went out and bought maybe three color TVs. Remember, this is the early 80s, right? <laughs> a big four-track recording system, stereos, Armani suits. He must have spent $10,000. He came back with the delivery guy, and they unloaded it all, and then he sat down on the couch and started crying like a little kid. Do you want anything else, Suzanne? He asked me. End quote. So there's like some very yeah. deep psychological shit going on there in his mind. Uh, his little drug-fueled mind about, like, his, it, does he his, think he's buying people? Well, if he's, especially if he's, like, giving money away to people, I wonder if he was, like, here, be my friend, come on, like, mm -hmm. like, um, I, this is what I'm good for for you. Which I wonder how that, it's total speculation, but how that would, like, maybe kind of fueled his relationship with Andy Warhol a little bit, like... He's like my dad figure. Here, daddy, didn't I do good? Didn't I do good? Mm -hmm. Sort of a thing, like looking for approval. Looking approval, for... yeah. He's trying yeah. to find mm -hmm. acceptance and approval from everybody yeah. around him. Based for on sure. what he can give them. Because, which, yeah. which for a father who is constantly disapproving of his um, behavior, well, for understandable reasons, you know, playing very much armchair psychologist, mm -hmm. but, you know, I think it's possible. So we just had all of this conversation off mic that, you know, it's very sad that he was, like, searching for daddy's approval, basically. Yeah. That never happens. <laughs> it's the entire... Why is Donald Trump? Because of his father. Yes. That's the answer. Yeah. That is the answer. What we need... 
is for white fathers to show up for their sons. Otherwise, they become Donald Trump. That is all, you know. Or just not that. prefer their sons are maniacs, which is apparently what he preferred. Ugh. That's too Jeez, bad. Anyway. I swear. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> overspending wasn't Jean's only financial misstep. He very specifically did not seem to care about the management of the business aspects of his work, which some have interpreted as a direct rebellion to his father, an accountant. Yeah. <laughs> Just being like, you taught me to be good with my money, well, fuck you, sort of a thing. Mm-hmm. As a young artist, he was frequently stiffed by dealers or fed a line that they didn't intend to follow through on. Uh, but again, others say that he was deliberately naive about it. One of Andy Warhol's estate managers said, quote, he always loved to be the victim of a foul plot, end quote. It's another thing, you know, it's a quote of a quote, but... But also, drugs can make you yep. paranoid. He was obviously paranoid mm-hmm. and young. Sorry, he's very young. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to be financially savvy at age 21. And he also may have been right to some extent. Mm-hmm. That's entirely yeah. possible. Also... We're talking the fine the fine art world, right? He was in the art world. He was not in the street art world anymore. He was in the fine art world, which is extremely white, mm-hmm. extremely upper class, and extremely old, right? And, and, and old prejudicial. Money. And Highly prejudicial. Probably thought they could get anything from him. Yeah, and we'll get into a little bit of that too, but yeah. Um, Jean also had a reputation of outlandish public behavior, including throwing food at people in restaurants. The shaving cream incident. Don't do that. Destroying a leather jacket he was wearing when he was modeling it for Issey Miyake. Oh, boy. There was paint as a prop, and he just poured the paint onto this designer leather jacket. And he would go into art galleries and write on the walls. Oh, boy. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Also, all drug fuel. Yes, yes, yes. The problem is, by and large, he got away with this behavior, and it wasn't called out for what it likely was, symptoms of substance abuse and or mental illness. Probably, like, he just had people around him going, oh, ha, 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 that's so cute. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And didn't face consequences either. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's that's the main thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Mild side rant, but I will say... If anyone in my presence says boys will be boys, I will hate them for the rest of my life. Because <laughs> yeah. they are excusing bad behavior, yeah. and that is just bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if boys will be boys, then kill them all. <laughs> I Like, just, just fuck them. Yeah, It's I mean, just bullshit. It's bullshit. It, it obviously is. Um, he's not doing that because he's male. Mm-mm. He's doing that. No, no, no. I am completely Amanda. taking this as a jumping off point to an entirely pet peeve of mine. <laughs> I do this frequently, you okay. see. Okay. <laughs> has nothing to do with Jean-Michel. <laughs> no. um, as a friend of Sean said, quote, he wasn't identified as a junkie. It was okay because he was an artist. It's a symptom of the whole way society turns artists into stars. End quote. Mm. He was yeah. excused. And, and he was making money for the art world, too. So there was that, mm-hmm. you know. It was capitalism all along, as my shirt says. What? <laughs> and Andy Warhol was known for doing that. Like, he had his quote-unquote superstars Ooh. that he basically, like, that would be the it girl or mm-hmm. whoever. I think it, sometimes it was a drag mm-hmm. or a trans person. So, like, it would be, like, 
you're you're the the it person and that would be the uh, famous person of the time and that was Andy Warhol's thing and he made it happen and it's very much probably what people thought of yeah. in the art world you know, you're just enfant terrible yes I was literally just gonna say that there were there were quotes calling him that mm-hmm. yep mm-hmm. what does that mean terrible child or terrible oh, baby okay. <laughs> but like the genius yes terrible. Sure. uh-huh the troubled genius gifted mm-hmm. wunderkind sort mm. of a thing, yeah. In August 1983, Jean moved into 57 Jones Street, a building owned by Warhol. He was greatly affected by the death of Michael Stewart the following month. So, Stewart was another graffiti artist and a model who was arrested for spraying graffiti in a subway station. Um, at this point, he was also dating Susan Malouk, so there was that connection. Stewart died in police custody. Oh, no. Stewart was a man of color under controversial circumstances, meaning... They killed yes, him. Yes, they killed him. Okay. Um, it's now thought that he may have been killed in a chokehold, similar to Eric yeah. Garner. Ugh. This is 1983. Yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> when, a, when a chokehold for a cop is still completely legal in 1983. Well, and it's not legal now, but you can still get away with it. No, 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 but mm-hmm. at the time there wasn't even a sanction on... Mm-hmm. So, so that's like why this is forty years ago, right? So when people say Black Lives Matter and then people say Blue Lives Matter, it's fuck you. This has been going on for this not even four four decades is like an understatement of how long this has been going mm-hmm. on. So it's like you know what, fuck you and shut up. It's just <laughs> the modern lynching. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. State sanctioned lynching, exactly. Um, now an interesting side note, Stewart's struggle with the police happened near the Parsons School of Design in New York City, a famous, uh, Tim Gunn famously worked there. Make it work. Yeah, that's right. Um, and one of the witnesses, like, who heard, uh, this guy, like, screaming in the street, like, let me go or whatever, was Rob Zombie. Oh, yeah. I was a student at the time. Yeah. Freaking New York, man. <laughs> I know, everybody's... It's like, um, on Real Housewives of New York, which I'm watching through now, they always say, this is a small town, because yeah. it really... Everybody yeah. is, and people run in the same circles, you know? It's interesting. Rob had some great hits. <laughs> as, Rob, as Rob Zombie and as White, and as white Zombie. Oh. White Zombie was the... He had two bands. He was very versatile. He, he was. And became a... Movies. Movie and guy. became a movie director, which I think is what most people know him as now. It's like, I know him as all those things. He has everything old. to me. Yeah, you're old. Exactly. <laughs> you, you Gen Xer. Or no, what, what do you call it? Yeah. Xennial? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm right on the cusp. I yeah. think you skew slightly more Gen X, honestly. Yeah, a little bit. And yeah. I skew more millennial. That's why we run into... Yes! <laughs> That's why we can't decide on the zombies. Is it white? Is it Rob? Is it both? Um, Jean created his work, The Death of Michael Stewart, also called Defacement, as an early artistic work against the never-ending story of police brutality against black people. Hmm. Has that been happening? (laughs) Since when? When? So you can see, and it's interesting, it's like kind of cartoony figures of cops and Philly clubs. It's like um, it's like noir video game art. Yeah, nowadays. I can see that. And then the the victim is um, 
portrayed as a silhouette, mm-hmm. which was a deliberate choice apparently by him to like not show a face that ac- represented an actual person, mm-hmm. like to representing everyone, and to and to not like be making a work to make money off of a person. Um, apparently, another artist around, and I didn't write this down. But another artist around the same time who was white, did a similar thing, but was much more specific in the, in the depiction of the victim, which was highly controversial, as it yeah. should be, because you should not make money off of. Kind of Those like figures the, uh, in... Oh, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, kind of like the remake of uh, uh, Candyman. What am I not remembering? No, uh, the guy with the hook. The Can- Candyman? Can- yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm not putting two and two together on that. <laughs> the figures in the mm-hmm. painting, the cop figures, mm-hmm. remind me of Mad Magazine. There's a, an artist, oh, Sergio, somebody okay. who used to draw the line drawings. Okay. And he just like draw really big-breasted women. That's okay. what I recall. See, I, was but, getting, I was getting out with the Candyman reference. The character in the new Candyman would draw these Oh, yeah, he did draw draw that, yeah. But it reminds me, because then you said Alfred E. Newman. Yeah. And it reminded me that maybe he was Oh, that's his influence, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's interesting, yeah. Um, At the peak of his career, which was around age 24, Jean's works were selling between $8,000 and $15,000 each, which is around $24,000 to $44,000 today. That's a pretty, that, you know you've made it when you're selling a canvas for that, like, yep. in your lifetime. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For sure. By age 24, so yeah. if he had lived a average lifespan, just talking continuous, well, continuous. Well, you're like, if I sell 10 canvases a year, mm-hmm. like, that's 240 grand. I'm great. Grand. <laughs> I'm doing great. Yeah. Probably still not enough to support his drug habit, but uh, well, that's, that's but to make art and make that much yeah. money yes, is absolutely. a lot of, for mm-hmm. any artist. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. You have you just have to get the drug habit first yeah. to be able to make the yeah. art. Yeah. No. He had shown all over the world and was hanging in galleries next to much longer established artists. Despite his success and fame, he still struggled with being a black man in a very very white world. Fab Five Freddy said, quote, even when he was flying on the Concord, another Mm, connection into the crash of the Concord, he wouldn't be able to get a cab, end quote. So he used to just hire limos because he couldn't hail a cab, yeah. Um, Jean said, quote, now this is a direct quote from him. I just want to be clear on that. They're just racist, most of these people. So they have this image of me. Wild money run, my, sorry, wild man running, you know, wild monkey man, whatever the fuck they think. End mm. quote. So he was well aware of. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm the sure perception. if like these things happen to him, the things that people would say would be even worse. Yep. Ugh. Yes. Mm-hmm. Larry Gagosian said, "Quote: There was a lot of resentment that there was a lot of envy, and it definitely, and it had definitely a racist edge to it." I remember there was an artist I was friendly with, and he had gone for a dinner party at a collector's house, and I said, well, what's their collection like? He said, they have a really great collection, Larry. The thing that fucks it up is that they've got a Basque. Don't even let them into the Mm -hmm. collections. Yeah. Yeah. Friend... Brett, uh, I almost said Brian De Palma. (laughs) (laughs) Brett De Palma, not Brian. No. Uh, his younger brother. The lesser diploma, I guess. Yeah. 
said he was once at Jean's studio when prospective buyers, prospective buyers of his work, came in and brought him a bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken. Okay. Which, why the fuck and what the fuck? He said that Jean dumped the chicken on their heads and kicked them out. Good. Good. That is an appropriate response. In that case, violence is the answer. Especially it's just chicken. It's fine. (laughs) I mean, it's KFC. You can get it anyway. (laughs) can't imagine of course i can't imagine but yeah I... yeah it's horrible and he, he was dealing with all of that while having questionable mental stability and being highly highly on drugs so none of that helped any of it mm-hmm. absolutely none of it and even if he had been straight as an arrow that shit would have happened to him just period because that's the world we live in which is bullshit but Over the next couple of years, Basquiat continued to reach major heights in the art world, and his meteoric rise was well-noted and well-documented. He collaborated several times with Andy Warhol, with varying results in reviews from critics. The motives of each artist for their friendship are long debated. So some think that John suckered onto Andy, like attached onto him because Andy was more established, could get him respect within the art establishment, and other thinks that and other thinks that Andy used Jean for street cred and relevance. Mm. I feel more like that, just seeing the pattern yeah. be, yep. and mm-hmm. knowing that I don't think Andy Warhol ever had a. Mm like a, a, a relationship that he wasn't in it for something. Hmm. So. Yeah. Um, and also both things could be true at the same yeah, time. And they could have all, it can also be true that they really liked each other, um, which seems to be the case, at least on some level. Warhol wrote in his diary about hearing from Jean's girlfriend, Paige Powell, quote, Paige is upset. Jean-Michel Basquiat is really on heroin. And she was crying, telling me to do something, but what can you do? He always said that. Did he He really? He always said, but what can you do? It's Mm. like, Andy. Andy. You could not be you. There's what you could in their lives. Huh. You could be a, a force for good, not indifference. Or taking advantage of yeah. you. Yeah. I think that, yeah, he always said, what can you do? But what can you, like, ugh. Yeah, a little. Later, Warhol documented his and Jean's drifting apart. Quote, called Jean-Michel, but he hasn't called me back. I guess he's slowly breaking away. End quote. It sounds like someone who's used to people breaking away. Mm-hmm. Sounds like Andy is sort of the Jill Zarin of the relationship, and Jean Michel's a little bit more of the Bethany Frankel. I'm talking, of course, of the Real Housewives. <laughs> I, I know Bethany Frankel, <laughs> but I also don't want to. I don't want to compare Jean Michel so uncharitably to Bethany Frankel. <laughs> <laughs> Although she's highly erratic, so maybe mm. it's kind of a decent comparison. She's also very fucked up from her childhood, so maybe it's, maybe it's not so bad. But Jill Zarin was always like the, I try everything, Bethany. I try everything to be good to you. Like the mm-hmm. little victim-y. Although it doesn't sound like Andy's being so victim-y as much. Doesn't, he is like, doesn't sound eh. like like indifferent well, like you said indifference and like the indifference into the like the leading up like he probably yeah. tried to help him gain fame yeah. and then when the fame fallout was something uh-huh. that Andy Warhol didn't like he was like oh what can you do yeah it's like well you can maybe be more careful do yeah other things yeah <laughs> you, you can do things yeah <laughs> 
The last straw between the two was as a result of their 1985 joint exhibition called Paintings, which was not well received by critics. Even leading up to the show, Andy wrote, quote, I'm just holding my breath for the big fight he'll pick with me right before the show, end quote. Critics called Basquiat Warhol's mascot, which I can only imagine how incendiary that felt to Jean. Sure. If you are a young black man being called an older white White man's man's mascot, mascot. that is, it's highly disrespectful and very inflammatory. Mm -hmm. Especially this old guy who has almost no relevance anymore, who's just kind of... Want, you can tell, wanting to ride the coattails mm-hmm. of other people's fame. Mm-hmm. Brett De Palma said, quote, I think Jean became very paranoid and suspicious of even Andy and felt that, you know, Andy had this reputation of being a vampire and feeding off younger artists and needing new blood to infuse his own career. Mm-hmm. Quote. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe not so paranoid. I'll check huh? out. But I mean, coming from the person with the 15 minutes of fame quote, coming with the person of like, I, he's, he transitioned into, like, magazine media in the 60s saying, like, painting is dead. I mean, he just wanted that constant overturning of the status quo. Hmm. So, yes, of course he did that. Of yeah. course. Despite the strain in their relationship, Jean would spend the rest of his life at 57 Great Jones. Andy Warhol died on February 22nd, 1987 at age mm-hmm. 58. Ask Sarah to comment on the details. <laughs> he died in, in, he had to have surgery right. and died. And I think it was just frail health, I would assume. Wasn't there like a, it, whether it was a rumor, if it really happened, of him like having been giving the wrong type of blood or something like that? Am I making that up? Or just wasn't he really paranoid about hospitals because of his prior experience in them? I think so, yeah. And so it was sort of the irony of him dying in Mm -hmm. a hospital. Yeah. I mean, I guess surviving a shooting 20 years earlier almost and making it another 20 years is pretty remarkable. Yeah, I mean, he he was he should have died essentially. Like mm. there was there happened to be like a really good surgeon at that huh. hospital at the time, and like knew how to handle the gunshot wound that nobody else could have handled. And you wonder how many deaths are actually entirely due to circumstances in terms of like the best doctor was out that day, mm-hmm. and so the people there did their best, but they just weren't the best. Mm-hmm. And if the best had been there, they would have made. Oh. That's so weird. Yeah, I mean, sure, all of us with the top-tier medical care <laughs> right. forever, right? right? Yeah, that's that doesn't that doesn't bode well for like we need Trump to die for fuck's sake. <laughs> please, not gonna happen. Please get rid of all the best medical help for him. He's gonna be around another twenty years at least. He's gonna be a fucking zombie. Jeez. Okay. Um, girlfriend Jennifer Good said, quote, it put Jean in a total crisis. He cried a lot and wore a black armband, end quote. So even though they fell out, like, it really devastated him. This is a year and a half before his own death, so. Jean's personal, so just to kind of, like, get to him and his personal life a little bit, Jean's personal life was non-conforming, as was his art, right? I've used the term girlfriend a couple of times for a couple people, but John was not like a, a typical person in typical relationships, not super typical in sexual expression. 
Um, but it's all just coming out of what other people say about him. So I'm not trying to be salacious. I'm just trying to say that he had multiple relationships of varying degrees. And that's why I'm just kind of explaining that. In the words of Suzanne Malouk, his sexual interests were, quote, non-monochromatic, end quote. Whatever that I mean, means. everybody's everything at an orgy, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, unfortunately, he apparently also wasn't above violent behavior towards Ugh. intimate partners, at the very least on one occasion, although there was, I did see other references to him hitting mm-hmm. um, various partners. At some point during their time together, Paige Powell became concerned about Jean's drug use and spoke... This is not to justify what he did to her, but Paige went about it by talking to his dad. Why? Yes, agreed. Wrong way for her to go about it. Also wrong for his reaction that I'm about to tell you, so... Both things were holding space for both truths. Um, so he told Ger- she, she told Gerard about it. Gerard asked her to tell Jean that she had talked to him. She did. And she said, quote, he took this glass face and threw it at my head and it just missed me. End quote. So. It was, it was a terrible idea for her to go to his dad. Also very terrible that he acted out violently so um also he was on drugs yeah. <laughs> a lot of the time so strangely you know. being on drugs he didn't <clears throat> pick very good uh partners and yeah being, right? and being 24 yeah um jean was apparently also pretty aware of his self-destructive tendencies friend lee jaffe said that one of jean's favorite books was junkie by william burroughs oh dear not a good idea when you actually are one no mm-hmm. another friend eating spoonfuls of nutmeg if you read that as like an experimental person (laughs) (laughs) terrible idea another friend kelly inman said quote he once told me that the only artists who really mattered die young end quote i mean so he just had an ambivalence towards his own destruction could have yeah another friend martin albert said quote he said i'm on heroin i guess you don't approve of that but i've decided the true path to creativity is to burn out he mentioned Janis Joplin, Hendrix, Billie Holiday, and Charlie Parker. I said, all those people are dead, John. He said, if that's what it takes. End quote. That's, yeah. that's depression. Like... Well, and his mom, I mean, first of all, anyone can suffer from depression. Yeah. Second of all, he actually had a family history yeah. of it to the point where they institutionalized his mother. Now, that's not to say she was to a point where she required institutionalization given the time period, but sounds like she sure had some mental health struggles. Mm-hmm. So he had potential mental health struggles. Nothing diagnosed and everything is like other people's... Um, interpretations. Interpretations and quotes. So it's all hearsay, so we don't know. But I did look up Charlie Parker. That would be an interesting story to potentially do. Sadly, I don't want to become like the overdose podcast where we just talk about people. But I do think that um, overdoses and and even suicides count as disasters. I mean, that's it's not criminal. It is just yep. Go on, Jesse. Bye, Jesse. (laughs) (laughs) No, you guys. All right. Um, even in the months leading up to Warhol's death, Jean wasn't doing well. Uh, once fueled by drugs to be incredibly prolific, Jean became more reclusive and produced less and less work. 
his drug use was causing major health problems. He developed open sores on oh, his skin no. all over his body. His front tooth fell out? That feels like the beginning of the end. Yes, it's his body is actually... Especially at that age. Jesus Christ, at he's still in his 20s. 27 for, like, your body to just... Like, how many drugs... We've seen people do drugs, get sober, and live the rest of their lives... How many drugs do you have to do for your body to fall apart that badly? Uh, you'd physically? have to be on acid it's all the time. Like, like Amy Winehouse, like when you, yeah. she didn't look too well. Yeah. Um, he, uh, he went to shadier and shadier sources for his drug supply. They literally Ugh. were like, the street sources dried up for what, like, the <laughs> I guess the upper crust dealers or whatever. <laughs> like, that supply dried up, so he had to go to, like, lower and lower um, sources when he had an art show in New York in spring of 1988, the reviews of both his work and his condition were mixed. Some said he, quote, seemed really happy, end quote, while others commented, quote, his face was covered with sores. This is 1988, right? People thought he had AIDS, end quote. Oh, man. Because yep. yeah. that's, that's not an entirely out there idea especially if he was shooting heroin yeah it is entirely possible he did have hiv nobody they didn't test for it or anything it was not at any point uh, a concern and he did not die of aids but um it it was very risky behavior for the time unless hopefully he was using i say hopefully, hopefully he was using clean needles but not that it would have mattered much based mm-hmm. on his lifespan but in June 1988, Jean went to Maui to try to get off drugs. So apparently he did this several times during his life, drying out in Hawaii. When I say drying out, he would get off hard drugs. He would still drink, he would still do weed, but he would get off hard drugs. Um, he said, quote, when I go to Hawaii, I don't think about drugs. End quote. So he just stayed in Hawaii yeah. is the answer. But he came back in good spirits by all reports, and he was planning a trip to the Ivory Coast of Africa on August 22nd. On Friday, August 12th, 1988, Kelly Inman, who was living on the ground floor of 57 Great Jones, became concerned about Jean because of the weather. So it was the dead of summer, it was very hot, the building didn't have air conditioning, and Jean refused to open the windows, period. Oh boy. Even in the hottest days. So she was worried about him. So at 2.30 p.m., Kelly went to check on Jean and found him asleep. It wasn't unusual for him to work at night or do whatever at night, sleep during the day. Um, so she left and around 5.30 p.m., a call came at the house for him and Kelly went to take him. So she took the message and went to take him the message. And when she opened his bedroom door, she found him face down on the floor. Mm. Some reports said that he had aspirated as well. Um, she immediately called 911. He was taken to the Cabrini Medical Center in Manhattan where he was pronounced dead on arrival. The resulting investigation found that the cause of death was a heroin overdose. Mm. His family held a funeral at the Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn. So he was 27, hence the 27 Club. Um, In 1996, the biopic Basquiat was released, directed uh, by artist and filmmaker Julian Schnabel, who directed The Diving Bell and the Butterfly and Lou Reed's Berlin. Hmm. It featured Jeffrey Wright as Jean, alongside kind of a cavalcade of stars, David Bowie as Warhol, um, Dennis Hopper, Gary Oldman, Benicio Del Toro, Claire Forlani, Parker Posey, and Courtney Love. No kidding. And uh, Jeffrey Wright is a pretty big name, too. Yeah. 
Um, I say, is he? Is he a big name? I don't know. <laughs> um, Jean died without a will. No. Uh, eventually, his estate was split between his parents, who were both who both survived him. Basquiat's work continues to be incredibly valuable, to a point that it got his family in trouble with the IRS. Oh boy! So, of course, you know I had to look into this. <laughs> so, when Jean's mother Matilde died in two thousand eight, her estate got split between uh, Jean's father and the two daughters. Right. Ugh, they were divorced. I know. I'm. It's sad that that's what happened, but, <clears throat> but yes. Apparently, the daughters and the father were fine, and still, so it kind of all went to the same family unit. But yeah, I know what you mean. Um. So at that time, the estate paid eight and a half million dollars in estate tax. Huge. It is wow. huge, but that should show how much his artwork is worth, right? Um. The IRS examined this and found that the amount was understated that they owed an additional 10 million dollars in taxes was it in cash or Jeez. in art that... in art wow. his estate so we'll get that in just a minute and that included uh, um tax and penalties and interest so they found that jean's estate was worth 138 million 131 million dollars <laughs> of it was artwork my god that's crazy i know that it is it is hugely and we'll get more into the value of his artwork. But um, uh, interestingly, and I'm going to geek out a little bit, the argument the estate made was based on something called a blockage discount. So this is like a legal slash tax thing um, where the idea is if all of these works of art were sold at once by the estate, it would flood the market, discount its value. Therefore, that's its market value for tax purposes to pay tax on. Interest. So they're kind of de- uh-huh. they're kind of lowballing it. Yes, they're devaluing the work because the idea is if the, they had to, if liquidate, had to liquidate exactly yeah. that it would it would it would devalue the work. And it has been used in court cases. It's it's been allowable to some extent by the IRS. I could not find anywhere, including sources I looked at, <laughs> um, that that on how the case ended. But I just oh. thought that was fascinating. So, how would you? What would, when you, <laughs> what would you walk into somebody whose famous child died, and they have a ton of? You'd their have artwork. to look at the case law, right? Yeah. Like, in what circumstances is this blockage discount allowed? To what extent? Like, maybe the IRS's assessment that they owed the additional ten million took into account a blockage discount. Who knows? You would just have to, they would have to have a very specific um, methodology for how they came up with that number. But I can't imagine, like, being that family, and they probably had emotional attachment to all of his art, being told, well, you're going to have to sell some of it to give us the cash. Right. Like, oh, what a, what a stake through the heart. But... When you're a family sitting on a, a, an estate worth over a hundred million dollars, mm-hmm. you're gonna have to get stabbed through the heart to pay mm-hmm. some of that. You know, it's a little bit, it's tough. You can see both sides of it, mm-hmm. kind of. You know, um, in 2017, Jean's 1982 painting, Untitled, sold for just under a hundred ten point five million dollars at a Sotheby's auction. This is that work. That I think that's what comes up yeah. if you Google right. search. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's kind of cool. I mean, 
I like abstracts. It's a little <laughs> bit of a, yeah. I keep saying basquet, basquet. Anyway, I, I practiced it a lot and didn't get it. Um, so as of 2020, this is the highest price ever paid for a work of art by an American artist, not adjusted wow. for inflation. So there are other um, non-American artists who... That was the only list I yeah. saw was specifically speaking to American artists. I'm not sure. And if you adjust for inflation, there's many more works of art that could potentially qualify. Um. Still linked even after their deaths, the second highest price paid was just over $105.5 million for Silver Car Crash, Jesus Double Christ. Disaster, a 1963 work by Andy Warhol. Yeah, that sounds like something he would paint. Yeah. It's not, it's a pho- photographic oh, okay. series there, I think. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. In 2022, the Orlando Museum of Art exhibited 25 works of art purported to have been discovered in storage by Thad Mumford, a television writer, who said he had bought them from Basquiat 40 years earlier. The FBI seized the paintings when Mumford signed a declaration that he never bought any works of art from Basquiat, nor had he ever even met him. It was completely fraudulent. Oh my goodness. That was last year. (laughs) Gerard Basquiat died in 2013. Uh, His mom died in 08. Jean's sisters, Lisanne and Janine, as well as their stepmother, Nora, are largely in control of Jean's estate. In 2022, they launched the exhibit Jean-Michel Basquiat, King Pleasure, in New York and L.A., and they are currently working with Boardwalk Pictures and Quinn Wilson to create a feature documentary on Jean. Oh, that'd be fun mm-hmm. to watch. Jean's friends and fellow art friend and fellow artist Keith Herring was commissioned to write Jean's obituary for Vogue, which he did less than two years before his own death from complications from AIDS. He wrote, quote, he truly created a lifetime of works in 10 years. Greedily, we wondered what else he might have created, what masterpiece, what masterpieces we have been cheated out of by his death. But the fact is that he created enough work to intrigue generations to come. End quote. He really uh, uh, walked so Banksy could run. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the story of Jean-Michel Basquiat. Yeah. It's a mean, life and a death, man. Yeah. That's so, the the tragic artist stereotype is yeah, there for a so reason, bad. isn't it? Oh my goodness. Well, it's almost... Uh, I mean, you can't get to... Yeah, you cannot get to this level of fame, art-wise, without. I mean, without the the struggle, growing up, I don't think you can. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Like, thought- like well-balanced people don't produce works of depth and this the sort of depth. Not really, of I mean. Hmm. No. On the other hand, we all have tragedy mm-hmm. in our lives. I think it's the, like, his willingness to tap into the darkest aspects of life and not care about death. (laughs) Like, he clearly didn't care if he died. Yeah, he did seem relatively ambivalent or Mm -hmm. even, like, accepting of it. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, that's probably what'll happen to me. You know what? It happened to everybody. So, yeah, it happened to all the greats. It'll happen to me, too. Mm -hmm. It's just, yeah, it's an interesting... I think and now I now I think I remember seeing this uh, biscuit movie. Uh, 
like the I, I think I can remember like the, like the, the cover art, the right? Font. Like yes. I always remember from, to watch yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I always remember it from Blockbuster Video. <laughs> yes, like I think that's what I, I think that's what I'm remembering it from too. Yeah. Like, wait a second. <clears throat> Mm-hmm. Almost twenty or twenty. Oh, Came out in ninety six. Eight, eight, seven, seven years ago. Oh, seven. twenty-seven years ago! Oh my goodness, twenty-seven club. Of course, mm-hmm. but then there was the but he died in thirty-five eight. years ago. Yeah, thirty-five years ago on. Let's see, today is we're recording it on the fifth, so in in one week it'll be. Yeah, August twelfth, thirty-five eighty-eight. Let's see, yeah. I'm sure. I mean, the, the guy sold the biggest painting. One of the America. most expensive after, yeah. after his death. And my guess is that's part of why it sold for what it did, is because mm-hmm. he was not around. If he was living, it yeah. would have been less. Because the art's all done. <laughs> like, he can't make anymore. Yep. Yep. Obviously. It's now a, a scarce resource. Mm-hmm. And, unless they flood the market. That's right, then it's a discount. It was an NFT before an NFT. No, no, (laughs) No, not at all. That's not what that is. It definitely was not. Definitely Uh, was. Well, it was was very interesting learning about this person because I. Same, I didn't know. Again, the name, it's just kind of like, yeah, I think, yeah, kind of, somewhat. Know it. Kind (laughs) of. Maybe. And I'm, I don't, I'm not very knowledgeable about art, so I didn't know about him. Just, I'm, I think Andy, I mean, is... Andy Warhol is known not just as an artist, but as like a pop culture yeah. thing. So, but Basquiat, I think very much known for his art. I mean, I don't know anyone's passing around the gray, <laughs> his experimental music, you know, or um, beat bop, <laughs> his <laughs> underground <Beat-bop>. single. <laughs> By K Rob, you know. <laughs> the Bibbidi Bobbidi Boutique. <laughs> That's right. That's a silly reference. Anyway. <sighs> well, thank you very much for hanging out with us, Sarah. Thank you for and, having uh, me. And refereeing. <laughs> refereeing. <laughs> this episode. Offsides. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Offsides doesn't mean on the sidelines. Icing. Nobody knows what that means. <laughs> <laughs> Including the referees. <laughs> so, that was the 27 Club, part four. Jean-Michel Besquiat. This has been another episode of All Bad Things. I'm David. I'm Rachel. I'm Sarah. We'll see you next week. <laughs>